hey, we should have a Boom Direct ASMR channel where we just like read, we just like read the Boom books, like whispering. I, yeah, I can't, I can't. <laughs> I'm just ASMR makes my skin crawl, I don't wanna. I think, you yeah, know, I actually think ASMR is really weird. I think it's hilariously fascinating that that is a thing. Ugh. Makes me yeah. wanna crawl out of my skin. So I shouldn't do it right now, okay. No. Speaking of crawling out of our skin. <laughs> hi humans, I'm Harley Silbaka. And I'm Anthony Morrow, and you're listening to Boom Direct, a show where we discuss our biggest hits, the insides of the comic book industry, first look announcements, and exclusive interviews with your favorite comic book creators. I'm like really disappointed that you took out what I wrote for your intro. I don't even know what you wrote for my intro. I'm going to be really honest. I went to go look at the script and I was just like, oh, it's the exact same thing I wrote. Good. No, I wrote, I wrote, uh, what did I write for your intro? So you were like, and I'm Anthony Morrow. Um, I wrote something about your beard. Oh, like, I like the beard connoisseur or something weird and silly. Was it, are you sure it wasn't this script? Everybody, a little yeah. peek behind the curtain. We're looking at a, at a <laughs> script for this preamble. Well, I didn't Our see it. Our so. scripts are very loose. They're very loose. It's like a collection um, of bullet points with some key information to hit. They used to be yeah. a lot more robust. Uh, we don't need them to be. No, I yeah. I was quickly learning that it was just taking up a lot of time to write a more robust script, and it just made us sound more robotic to just kind of read off of a script, so we stopped doing that. We like to sound like ourselves instead of robots because this isn't a science fiction podcast only. Yeah. So. That being said, speaking <laughs> of sounding like ourselves, uh, if I sound different, I have a touch of bronchitis. A uh, I got the concred. I got the concred pretty bad coming back from San Diego. Um, Same. <clears throat> and I uh, am recovered from that, but uh, not my... Not my throat, not my voice. I feel like a so. touch of bronchitis is like making it sound like it's so much less than it is because bronchitis stays forever, yeah. Yeah. forever. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a while now. I wish um, this was like a Star Trek universe though, where we could just like go in and see Doctor Crusher and she's just like puts a little thing on her neck is like all cool. So you're you're fine. You'll be fine in a few hours. I want that. Yeah. I would like to just not get sick ever. Yes. Um, that would be my yeah. preference. Um, anyways. <laughs> but hi, welcome. Welcome to Boom Direct. Um, we get really off topic. Are, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, we sure do. But uh, but today we actually this we're we're recording this preamble far after this interview that we did today months literal yeah. <laughs> months multiple multiple months after we recorded the interview yeah so um, we we recorded an interview for um if those of you who are cool ufo supernatural type fans know about mm -hmm. uh skinwalker ranch mm -hmm. uh we interviewed uh people about hunt for skinwalker which we'll get into more later we'll get into more later but uh we did we did, and that it was a blast too. It was so it, fun. It it was it was awesome. Um, I've been texting with with our uh, editor, the Mike, the guy who edits uh, all the Boom Direct episodes, and he was super stoked to be listening through all that uh, audio and going scrubbing through all that footage. Um, last oh. night, as of this recording, we love Mike. Um, we love Mike. Shout Mike's out the best. To Mike. Mike, you're the best. You are the best. But yeah, we recorded it back in like may like end of april mm -hmm. early may yeah it, it would have had to been early may um 
to support the launch of the Hump for the Skinwalker Kickstarter mm-hmm. um, that we did because we wanted to use some of that footage uh, for the campaign itself. So we just thought, well, let's kill two birds with one stone and then sit on this interview <laughs> until September uh, when the direct market uh, single issues launch. Yeah. So here we are. Here now, we are. Months later. Um, but we've matured. We've grown. We've gotten bronchitis. We've gotten hand crud. tattoos. Got, you know. I got a I got a rib cage tattoo. Yeah. So nice. We've I got gotten I got this done. People oh. people listening to this cannot <laughs> see this, uh, but I got it's actually super got, dope. Yeah. Yeah. I guess more like that. But listen, at some point yeah. we're just gonna like we'll just post pictures of like Anthony's hands in front of his face so you can see his yeah. hand tattoos. Yeah. I. This is. I want to say on, on when we spoke to like Melissa and Megan, we got off topic for like oh I want to say God. a solid fifteen minutes yeah. just talking about, about tattoos. Because so, I think I yeah. had I think when we interviewed them, I had just gotten my the one on my rib cage, which was painful, yeah. but not as painful as I thought. And Melissa was showing off her uh, Power Rangers lightning bolt tattoo yeah. as well, which is really cool. Anyway, <laughs> um. Not to get too off topic. We got so off topic. Tattoos and we comics. Got so off topic. Honestly, they they, well, they work. They work. Th- they do. They really do. Um, and speaking of comics, <laughs> uh, circling back to what the show's really about, uh, let's talk about some <laughs> of the stuff that we announced back in August, um, including Lotus Land. Ooh. It is a new sci-fi cyberpunk dystopian. Uh, comic series coming from us, obviously, written by Darcy Van Polgeest, illustrated by Caio Philippe, and colored by Patricio Del Pesh. Uh, the short pitch, the short elevator pitch for it is it's uh, Old Dog Meets Blade Runner. Uh, super Heck cool. Yes. I've got to read it. I've got to see a lot of art from it, and it is very much uh, what I'm all about. So Yeah, the art's uh, stunning. Yeah, absolutely add it to your pull list. Uh, also, we announced Zawa and the Belly of the Beast, uh, written and illustrated by Michael Dial Ines. Um, you may know his work from Wind. He's also the artist in Wind, and he's wonderful. It's very like uh, Princess Mononoke meets Twig. It's one of our all ages Boom Box titles. So we actually have multiple imprints at Boom. Uh, and mm-hmm. Boom Box is like our middle grade YA stuff. Um, a lot of it's like super fun and and this one is eco friend uh, eco friendly tale. Oh my god, I can't speak today. An eco friendly tale <laughs> about a mountain spirit living in a polluted world. Honestly, like it also weirdly gave me Do you guys remember the um Godzilla movie with the pollution monster? Oh, Hedora. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It Godzilla was yeah. the smog monster. Yeah, yeah, smog monster, which was my favorite as a kid. Yeah. Like when I was reading about this one, I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's like to me it was like that also meeting Princess Mononoke and like Spirited Away vibes." So, Super into that. Definitely more all ages than uh, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. I'm sorry. I watched that starting at the age of like four. What are you talking about? That's super all ages. I mean, I think I did too. Uh, but yeah, this is, it's it's a fun one. Um, like Harley mentioned, Michael Downlinus, uh, illustrator for Wind. Um, long time. Boom. Fan favorite here yeah, at the so company. Sweet. I think it's our second boombox title of the year behind Met Cadets. Yeah. Yeah. And we have some other stuff coming down the pipeline, which we haven't announced. But there's some things yeah. other for boombox that I'm very excited about that we'll probably yeah. talk about later this year. Because this world is never done, uh, the next one shot in the Berserker mythos, Berserker Fallen Empire, yes. written by Keanu Reeves, 
uh, Matson Tomlin, who is the writer for A Vicious Circle, who we interviewed uh, last episode of the podcast. So go listen to that. Yep. Um, he's also uh, the screenwriter for the Batman Part Two that mm-hmm. will be coming out eventually, whenever uh, all the strikes <laughs> are done. Also, just side note, uh, absolutely support the WGA and the SAG after strikes. Heck yes. Um, everybody deserves to be paid uh, what they're what they're worth and what they deserved. Mm-hmm. Going back to Berserker Fallen Empire, though, like I said, written by Keanu Reeves, Matson Tomlin, illustrated by Rebecca Isaacs, who is coming off of her run on Money Shot at Vault, uh, colored by Jordi Belair, who is just kind of uh, one of the best colors in the industry right now. And uh, the short, the long short of it is it's a violent love story in B's history. I also so, don't I don't want Berserker to ever be done. That sounds silly. I love it. Listen, there's an 80,000 year like time yeah. frame to play with with these one shots so which makes like me we so got, jazzed yeah so we got poetry of madness which was like cool weird atlantis story this is also like very far back um like ancient world rise and fall of an empire uh kind of story set in that time frame uh but a very different story than poetry of madness um and this one is more of just like a very tragic love story um and it looks beautiful i love it y'all should be stoked uh, we also announced The Space Between, written by Hugo and Eisner-nominated Karina Becco, illustrated by Danny Luckert. Uh, this is a sci-fi transcending story about love, which I love science fiction love stories. They're probably the ones that I gravitate to the most. Um, it's about survival, liberation, um, aboard a generation ship. Um, so each issue actually features like a new pair of characters, protagonists, and like a whole new generation aboard this ship, which I think is super rad. I love kind of Almost like anthologies, but in the same universe. It does feel like a cool sci-fi anthology without actually being an anthology. Yeah, it's it reminds me of, oh gosh, Harlan Ellison years ago did one that was similar where it was all in the same world and universe with the same planet and like the same like long-term war of science fiction, but it was short stories um, from different times with different people. And that's totally the vibe this gives me. And I can't believe I'm blanking on it because literally I have it signed to me by Harlan Ellison. Um, and I don't remember, but at some point I'll remember. But yeah, I'm really excited for the space between, like super stoked. Yeah, it's going to be a super cool one. Um, and to round out our uh, new announcements from August, we have Animal Pound. Oh, uh, yeah. Multi Eisner Award winner. Tom King and a longtime industry sweetheart artist Peter Gross uh, collaborate together for the first time for the very first series at Boom Studios. Um, If you can't tell from the title or uh, if you haven't seen any of the promotional materials we put out for it since announcing the book, it is a 21st century retelling of the seminal work Animal Farm. Uh, It is a bleak look at how our two-party system has given way to fear and fascism. It is a four-part event miniseries. Um, It is very ambitious, and I think Tom and Peter are going to pull it off. I do, too. We we had um, a meeting where Editorial shared a lot of this stuff with us, and honestly, I got really excited. I feel like it definitely... It's not. It's very literary, and also, again, mm-hmm. obviously, like very political. But I think it's going to be a title that really hits super hard, and I'm very excited to start selling that in at the book market level. So yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a cool one, and 
you know, working working with Tom and Peter just as a comics fan definitely is like a a career highlight for me so far. I also uh, can we finally talk about now that it's out on Netflix? Can we talk Met Cadets? Yes, we can. Ah! Um, it's on Netflix, it's, y'all. It's out. It seems crazy because I think the two of us individually have been have like watched the first seven episodes yes. of Met Cadets like months before the show came out. Yes. Uh, so it's just like, oh, that's right. A majority of people, like all everybody, hasn't seen this. Only a small handful of people have been able to see at least part of the show. Uh, but it was really cool to get to sit down uh, with my with my little family and, and get to watch through it and then also get to experience the last three episodes of that show for the first time. I know uh, it's we, we didn't get those. No, we didn't. Time. It was it's so good, too. And it's great. Like, um, so I've obviously have been telling all my friends about it. But like my best friend is uh, first generation from China um, with his family. And for him, he's like texting me about a bunch. He's like, I'm so into this because that's they do touch on that a bit. Right. Like in the yeah. show and that mm-hmm. whole like theme of culture and he's like super into it. He's like, oh my gosh, this reminds me of stuff with my family. And he's like super, super into it, which was like really touching for me to see. And also like, I think currently right now, what we're on for America, we're in the Netflix top 10. Aren't we like number six of the- Um, We were, God, uh, last time I checked, we were number six or seven in TV shows in general on Netflix, and we were like number two in kids' TV shows. Yeah, we keep moving uh, up. In the United States, yeah. And then in other countries, we're also like in the top 10 even higher. So, yeah, ah! I think it's just really positive word of mouth, which is cool. It's a really cool animation style. Um, But yeah, I mean, like, if you like, if you like mech anime like Gundam or Evangelion and yeah. and like to see like a, a more all ages take on those kind of stories, even like flavors of Pacific Rim, which I know like Pacific Rim heavily influenced by yeah. Evangelion um, and, and shows of that nature. Um, it's it's super good. And like without getting too much into spoiler territory, there's there's a part where some of the adults are talking about the decisions they made and, like, one of the characters says, like, I'm tired of sending kids to die. And I'm just like, yeah, like, I'm 100% on board with every decision Dude. you made. Like, even though you're positioned to be kind of, like, the bad guy in this scenario, like, I'm 100% on board with you. Like, that, and it's cool that, like, they raised that yeah. in, like, what amounts to a kid show, you And know? they also, it's, like, that gave me full and Ender's Game vibes. That yeah. that scene, I was like, oh, but uh, yeah. And also, again, huge shout out also to our media team, um, to Steven and to Meta, because, wow, they yeah. really pulled off something spectacular and they did a lot of work for this and they should get all the kudos and like a huge round of applause. So absolutely. And a uh, shameless plug as well. If you want to read the comics that inspired the series, Met Cadets book one is currently on sale, collects all 12 issues of the original series and currently um, I think issues one and two of Met Cadets, mm-hmm. the follow-up series to that story, the new series, which continues the story. The new series uh, are on sale uh, in yeah. your local comic shops. And they're amazing. Go figure. Yeah. So con- yeah. con- again, also congrats to, to Greg Pak because Greg is also. To, yeah. To Greg Pak and uh, Takeshi Miyazawa, yep. the artist on that series as well. Uh, well-deserved win for the two of them. Yeah, and uh, and me and Anthony got is... to spend some time with Greg at ALA this year because we brought him with yep. us to the, the library convention, which is what ALA is, and he is just a delightful person. Yeah, he's he's the best. <laughs> he's the best. 
So he's for sure the best. Which, speaking of reading and authors, let's talk about our reading list. What we're reading now, post con. <laughs> so uh, I've been sick, so I haven't done a ton of reading. I've done a ton of just like watching TV. So I watched. Uh, speaking of like mech anime, I watched all the the Evangelion rebuilds on Amazon. Of course, he uh, did. Which are all super great. There's four of them. Thrice upon a time, the very last one is the perfect capstone to that series. If you are just weirdly obsessed with that series, like I am. Uh, the other two things I do have on my reading list, though, is uh, two time travel books, because we love talking about time travel on this podcast. Uh, The first one is a book called Replay by Ken Grimwood. (gasps) Oh, I've read that. Oh, nice. I used to carry that in my shop. When I ran a comic book shop, we had a small section of novels where I did time travel sci-fi and like fantasy novels, and that was one of the ones I pushed a lot. It's amazing. It's like a very underrated like time travel book. Yeah, my my dad was really pushing me to read it, so I'm going to, when I'm done... You're going to love with, it. With what life things I have going on right now, I'm going to sit down and read it. And the second one is called This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub, daughter of seminal horror author Peter Straub. Dude, that's on um, my list, too. Nice. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'll read both of those and report <laughs> back probably next month. So, <laughs> um, For me, I, I just picked up. I didn't realize we were doing another Nemesis comic, so... I picked that up last week and started reading that. Amazing. Um, I also started a reread of a book that I read when I was like in high school, the Sabriel series about the necromancer. Mm-mm. So when we were at Comic-Con, I went by the L. Hoffer design booth and they had like a sweater that was like a Sabriel sweater, but like their stuff is like really like low key. And I was like, that can't be that. Is that that? And then I asked them and they're like, yeah, you actually know that book series? And I was like, yes. So uh, I got, I was like, oh man, I need to reread it. So I'm going to be rereading that. Um, And then my treat to myself, I'll buy that sweater after I'm done. Um, And then also I'm in, I'm almost done with the second book in the whole uh, Scythe series that I've been reading. Oh yeah. Um, um, Dude. Okay. Can I just say, I high recommend this series because like the stakes get higher and higher. And like, you know, we both read and consume a lot of stories. We're usually pretty good at predicting where things are going to go. I haven't been able to for like 50% of these books. That's, that's cool. saying something and I am obsessed with them. And also they touch on the whole like AI and all this other stuff that's like really fascinating and it's in the future when like there's no more death. And anyway, I recommend everyone should read those. They're super, super good. I really kind of want us to like somehow get rights to it and make an adaption in a comic. Anyway, um, because I'm obsessed. So that's really the reasons I'm obsessed. We should also talk paranormal stuff because that's really what our interview yeah. was about. <laughs> totally. So, I mean, th- this is not a book at all. Uh, it's a TV show, and it's a TV show I absolutely love. It's called Ghost Adventures. Uh, <laughs> it's it's on it's on Discovery Plus. I think you can watch it on on HBO Max now because of that merger. Uh, but it, there's like 26 seasons of it. It's incredible. Uh, it's this guy named Zach Baggins. Uh, who goes and investigates paranormal hotspots with his crew. Um, and it's just like the most weirdly chaotic ghost hunting show I've ever seen. <laughs> and like, this is going to be super controversial uh, for a lot of people. I don't believe in ghosts at all. I don't believe in like a spiritual realm. I don't believe ghosts are real. I don't believe that there's life after death. I absolutely love this show. 
It's so good. <laughs> but do you believe in aliens? Because that's really the big question. Yes, that's a, that's a completely different thing. But yes, it is yeah. statistically improbable for Earth to be the only planet in the entire exactly. universe Thank you. to have evolved life. It's like basic logic. Yeah, it's. I, I, I was I was explaining this to uh, children to the children. other day, but I'm just like every star in the sky is like ours. In, in a very layman's term, is like our sun, right? Our sun is technically yeah. a star. Not every star has a planetary system, but a lot of them do. Correct. And just in our immediate arm of the Milky Way galaxy, it's improbable that ours is the only planet with life on it, let alone in all the other galaxies yeah. in the We're universe. We're such a small part of the universe. So, Because yeah. um, I will say... So, I, yes, aliens exist. I don't think in the way Tom yeah. DeLong thinks they exist, but aliens <laughs> exist. <laughs> I because I feel like that's so much of what we did talk about um, about like Hunt for Skinwalker and Skinwalker Ranch and all that stuff is like a lot mm -hmm. of it is more alien supernatural stuff versus like ghost supernatural. And like I loved like X-Files growing up and also um, mm -hmm. Fringe, which is a little bit more of the that version of supernatural, which is the kind that I'm like super into. <laughs> super supernatural anyway. Um, sorry. Listen. Uh, I will uh, say, <clears throat> comics-wise, a good comp title, because I don't want to just talk about Ghost Adventures. I just, <laughs> I, if I can plug that show or convince somebody to watch that show, I absolutely will. Yeah. Unabashedly, I'm a huge fan of Zach Baggins and everything he does on that show. Um, comp title, Ghost Lore. It is literally oh, ghost, Colin Bunn's yeah. magnum opus, in my opinion. Um, if you love Harrow County, which is also a great mm -hmm. kind of supernatural title to read... Um, you'll love Ghost Lore. It is his like version of a seminal ghost story. Um, yeah. Every issue of that series has a kind of short story, and they're illustrated by uh, a different artist each time. And Which it's is so an potent. Artist he has worked with over the co yeah. course of his career, so it's like a swan song to everything he's done up into his career so far. Um, and it's just like a really kind of heartfelt family story and also terrifying yes uh, and it's it's like god how do i want to, what's a good word it's like the road meets the best parts of supernatural yeah but it's also with like the characters actually can converse with the ghost so it's like the yeah. tv show ghosts but much darker it's the really yeah. dark version of that show um yeah. i also will say like i because i love supernaturally stuff uh abbott if you love detective, oh, yeah. hardcore, some hardcore mm -hmm. detective stuff, but also supernatural elements, Abbott is really good. Um, I love Abbott. I think right now we have two two volumes out, two arcs of Abbott, and Abbott's wonderful. Um, it's it's funny because I was trying to think of any other like UFO specific type comic books, and there aren't as many as I was thinking. Like, there's a lot of supernatural stuff, but it's not necessarily, like, alien supernatural or UFO. Like, there's a lot of space, but there isn't a lot of, like, things like, okay, like, the movie Nope. Nope is, like, a great comp to add in here. The best one I can think is Blue Book um, being published over mm -hmm. by Dark Horse right now. Yeah. Uh, written by James Tynan. Uh, shout out to James Tynan, right? Something's coming over here. Um, but it's his kind of, it's, it's like, nonfiction yeah. telling of, of Project Blue Book, which is a... Um, uh, the, the U.S. government's uh, catalog of uh, UFO and abduction events. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we can also, I mean, I guess we could also add in the comic book that was the Manhattan Projects where we have the whole touching on, especially right now with the Oppenheimer movie, touching on Mm. Oppenheimer, where in the book it's actually, he has an evil twin. And it's his evil twin who takes over. He, like, eats its twin. It's it's really dark. Um, (laughs) But you have, like, Einstein in a glass bubble and, like, all of that stuff, which is really cool, which is really cool. And I I really enjoyed that series when it was coming out. Um, Yeah. I actually, I don't know why, and also this stuff makes me think of the beauty where it has that kind of like realistic supernatural element to it where it's like everyone gets, you can get a disease that makes you hotter, <laughs> but like, <laughs> it sounds so silly, but it like makes it so that like you're, all of a sudden you're just like more sculpted and like your temperature is above normal. So you're always hot. So you actually burn more calories. It's just like a whole thing, um, but it's fascinating. And they actually start realizing the repercussions of this disease because they're not sure. And um people are like internally combusting on like public transit and things who Incredible. have the beauty. Um, so I love, again, I love the kind of weird realistic supernatural stuff. So I'd also be remiss not to mention and plug Colin Bunn's the empty man. Also oh. a great supernatural, yeah. weird paranormal story. And there's a about movie like shared psychic dreams. There is a movie much different than the comic, still a great movie. Uh, but watch the movie and read the comic. Uh, it's it's not like a cryptid type supernatural paranormal story. It's more yeah. of like a psyop kind of shared psychic connection around the world yeah. story. It's it's good. It's, it's very good. good. It's a very weird horror story. In we the like best weird way possible. We, we like do. weird here. But yes, yeah, so we did months ago at this point get to talk to some two two super rad humans. Yes, we got to speak with uh, George Knapp, the career journalist who has become the godfather of paranormal and UFO phenomena reporting since breaking the story in Hunt for the Skinwalker. Uh, and uh, to Dr. Colm Kelleher, the lead researcher on the ranch during the time that uh, Bob Bigelow and the National Institute for Discovery Science years. So, which it, it was insane talking to these two, like a journalist and then a, like an actual like doctor scientist expert, like the two of them were amazing. I think, and, and, you know, they'll, they'll get into it. I think the, the funniest thing for the, all the time that George spent on the ranch over the course of his yeah. life, he has never had a single experience on that ranch, um, which is, which is did. insane to me, <laughs> but yeah, but, but the doctor but, did. Uh, Dr. Kelleher just had nothing but yeah. weird experiences. And it's it's all like documented by yes. by the the teams that have been there previously, the teams that's there now, by the US government. It's just like Well, and you like, look at the history of it too, like the native people. Yeah. Like actually like the like the tribe that was the native people on that land in their own folklore for their tribe, they have that. Yeah. In that spot, like all of those stories and things. Yeah, like, the the Uinta Basin. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, it's it it was such a great conversation, and it's it's one of those that like, man, if we weren't doing this for a podcast, we we could have kept keeping. Oh my god, we could have kept talking to them for Ever. for hours. Yeah, but Forever. we had to. We eventually had to stop. Um, so lame. <laughs> yeah, but it 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 was very cool. Uh, I hope you all enjoy it. Uh, and please remember to like and subscribe to Boom Direct on YouTube and wherever you find your podcasts. So, you know, the Internet. Yes. And please, uh, if you like this show, 
do one thing for us and just tell a friend about it. Have them yeah. have them listen to it. And also uh, email us. You can also email us questions or whatever you, you want. Can. You can. Uh, boomdirect at boom-studios.com. Do it. Uh, without further ado, dear listeners, hunt for the skinwalker. Today we are speaking to the two men whose account of the largest publicly known scientific investigation into one of the most active and notorious paranormal hotspots garnered national attention with their best-selling acclaimed book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, Dr. Colm Kelleher and George Knapp. Hi, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're very excited, so we're going to dive right in and start nerding out. So, uh, Dr. Kelleher, you were the lead investigator on what we're calling the Gorham Ranch for nearly a decade. How did you come to be in that position and what was your, um, oh, this is real moment on the ranch? Yes, I was a mainstream scientist, believe it or not. I I really had no sort of interactions with goblins and uh, spooks. I was doing mainstream immunology uh, research in Denver, Colorado. And I saw this bizarre ad in Science Magazine and it was advertising for people who were interested in researching the origins and evolution of consciousness. And believe me, in the universe. And that was one of the weirdest ads that was ever published in Science Magazine. So I had to pick up the phone to see what was going on. And I talked to a guy called Robert Bigelow in Las Vegas, who was putting together a team of scientists to start investigating scientifically UFO phenomena. And at the same time I was hired, um, he bought this ranch because of a lot of media activity up in northeastern Utah that was host to literally a paranormal Disneyland. So within a couple of weeks of being hired, I was installed on Skinwalker, what later became known as Skinwalker Ranch, not really knowing what was, you know, what we were supposed to do or what was happening. And um, <clears throat> within a couple of weeks of being on the property, I was standing outside that command and control trailer And I saw this really low, fast moving object that came from over what we now call Skinwalker Ridge. It was coming from the north and it really came right over my head and it was flying low. It was completely silent, did a perfect 180 degree turn right over my head. And I mean, I was with another physicist at the time. We were just staring gobsmacked at this thing because This should not have occurred with any known aircraft that I'd ever been aware of. It did a perfect 180 turn right over my head and then zoomed back over uh, Skinwalker Ridge and was gone. I mean, the whole thing happened in about a a minute or less, but it was moving really quickly and it was silent. Now, out in Skinwalker Ranch, you know, the nearest town is like seven, eight miles away. Nearest big town is 30 miles away. So... There's really nothing, nothing there whatsoever. And uh, to see this thing, you know, within a few weeks of being installed on Skinwalker Ranch really caught my attention because I knew that there was no possibility that this was, you know, a jet aircraft with baffled engines or anything like that. It was moving about the speed or faster uh, of a jet aircraft, but it was completely spooky silence. And, you know, that sort of thing is is incredible. But the 180 degree turn is just impossible for a jet aircraft to make. I mean, you just can't do that. 
the G-forces would, uh, would absolutely kill a pilot, you know, instantly. So it, it really kind of brought it home to me that something weird was happening on this property, you know, and I was straight out of mainstream science, as I said. So it, it sort of was my rough initiation into this whole thing. That is so insane. That, that really is. How, how do you go from switching that mindset from being in mainstream science into, into seeing that phenomenon and then just being like, okay, this is what we're here to do? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like a shock value. You know, you go through a sort of a process of, you know, this can't be real. It's, there's, there's, there's something going on. There's some sort of, uh, you know, um, laser light show or whatever. But this was not a laser light show. You know, we could see an object, a structure behind this really bright light. So, it's you know, there's a guy called John Mack, who's a very famous researcher. He uses the term ontological shock, which means that everything you believe in or everything you've you've been taught in uh, in textbooks uh, suddenly is called into question. So it's this sort of feeling of ontological shock. And I went through a few of those on Skinwalker Ranch, uh, you know, because that was not the only episode that I, you know, came up, up against, but it was the first one. And it was sort of a process of beginning to accept the impossible was possible, you know, and, and sort of, there's nothing better than visually seeing something with your own eyes to start convincing yourself that, um, you know, this is real. This is not somebody reporting something or videotaping something or photographing something. This is really, you know, this is real. George, switching over to you, how did you come to know Dr. Kelleher and what drew you to the events that were happening on the ranch? In uh, 1989, I produced this series, a uh, well-received series, a comprehensive look at the UFO mystery for KLIS-TV. Uh, it included the Bob Lazar Area 51 story. So it, it went all over the world. One of the first calls I got at the end of that series, once it was done, was from a guy named Robert Bigelow. I'd never heard of him before, didn't know that he had an interest in this, but he uh, made it clear that he wanted to know more, that uh, he wanted to get together. We started meeting to talk about UFOs, have a bite, have a drink, kicking around conversations, and we became friends. And the, during that time period, he was already providing financial support to many of the, the biggest names in ufology. Uh, John Mack, I think, was one of them, Bud Hopkins, Linda Moulton Howe. He wanted to fund credible research. He offered a bunch of money, I think more than a million dollars, to the main UFO organizations of the time and said, here's the money. You always need money um, and you complain about being poor. All you got to do is get along. Well, they couldn't. So in 1995, he decided to create his own UFO organization uh, called NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. And it was devoted to not only the study of life elsewhere in the universe and UFOs, but related mysteries and also consciousness. Do we survive physical death, for example? And he put together this amazing group of people on his science advisory board, uh, ex-astronaut um, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, a U.S. scientist named Harrison Schmidt, who at the time was a U.S. senator uh, from New Mexico, uh, amazing people like Hal Putoff, Jacques Vallée, uh, some really big names in these fields. And they, they formed in 1995. They had their first meeting in 1996, and they allowed me to speak to that group uh, um, about some Russian research that I had brought back. 
I was just thrilled to be walking uh, in the same building with those great, great big brain people, clearly out of my depth. But I was friends with Bigelow at the time that he bought Skinwalker Ranch and at the same time that he hired uh, Colin Kelleher. And uh, I'm sure Colin was wondering who the heck this reporter is who's hanging around all the time. But Bigelow trusted me and he asked Colin to trust me. And at that time, they were doing some really cool research into cattle mutilation cases, uh, triangular UFOs, UFOs in general. And I was allowed to be a fly on the wall so long as I didn't report it at the time. Uh, so I got little bits and pieces about the ranch when Bigelow went there to purchase the property. His interest had always been primarily UFOs, but there had been cattle mutilations, which was a topic of interest to NIDS and a column in particular. And um, so they went, Bigelow goes to Utah, meets with the rancher, buys the property, sends in his team, Colum, Eric Davis, and others. They basically put a cone of silence over the ranch after that and got down to work. And they did what scientists are supposed to do. They looked for sort of prosaic explanations for the strange stuff that was happening there. They had been drawn by the story of UFOs. And for decades, the Uinta Basin, that, that where the ranch is located, had been a hotbed of UFO activity. There was a book called The Utah UFO Display, written in the 70s, by a guy named Dr. Frank Salisbury, with the, the foreword was by J. Allen Hynek, sort of the father of modern American ufology, who basically vouched for the fact that this was a hotbed of UFO activity. And that is what drew the NIDS team to Utah. Bigelow and Column would drop little hints, little tidbits here and there about what was going on on the ranch. And it became clear it was a lot more than just UFO activity, although there was plenty of that. And it was a lot more than just cattle mutilations, although there was plenty of that, that there was some other weird stuff going on. I pestered them all the time about trying to get on the ranch myself. And finally, around 2000, I think it was, when the activity level had sort of started to take a nosedive, they finally let me come to the property. And my proposal was I wanted to do film a documentary. I wanted to record as much as we could. So my first visit, I went by myself. The second time I went there, I brought a photographer along and we started shooting interviews and going to places where different events had happened. And I worked for a couple of years gathering material on that. But uh, eventually, Mr. Bigelow changed his mind, said, kill this uh, documentary idea, because if you do a story, we're going to be overrun by UFO nuts. They'd kept a lid on the story of the ranch, pretty much. Not much of the public was aware of what was going on, uh, other than people who lived in the Uinta Basin. And that's the way he wanted to keep it. And uh, eventually that led to the book, but we'll jump into that in a moment. Yeah, I also really quick, I would love to, and this is like a off off the cuff question, is I would love for you guys both to say what was the weirdest thing you witnessed while at the ranch? The first trip I made with a photographer, we drove in the property and I swear we heard a wolf growling, a big growl. As soon as we entered the front gate, we looked at each other like, did you hear that? Was it real? But we didn't see anything. I, I've never seen anything that I would call anomalous other than a strange light in the middle uh, homestead that we could not identify. But none of the creatures, none of the flying saucers that other people have seen. I've been there a couple dozen times, column hundreds of times. So he has much better stories than I do. Well, th there are there are a couple. But, you know, uh, George was just talking about cattle mutilations and uh, one of the weirdest things that I've ever seen was um, a, a at the time, you know, a rancher and his wife were still working as 
ranch manager just after we had taken over the ranch. And he still had his cattle on the property. They were, you know, they were on in the process of moving them off. And this was around March of 1997. And <clears throat> they were tagging these newborn calves. Uh, so they tagged, tagged one of them and then moved down about 100 yards away. And the dog that was with them started freaking out and uh, sort of started running away from where they had come. But, but, but obviously there was something happening behind them. They turned around and they could see this mother cow running around in a frantic way. So they came back and found that the, um, that the calf that they had just tagged was completely, um, you know, all of its body cavity had been removed. It was lying on the grass. So they put in a panic call to Las Vegas. We got on Robert Bigelow's private jet. We were standing over that animal within maybe four or five hours after it had uh, had been killed. And it was honestly the weirdest thing that I've ever seen because it was this obvious newborn calf that was lying sort of with its four legs sort of stretched on the grass um, um, with uh, the big plastic tag of on the ear had been sliced off cleanly with obviously what looked like a scalpel. I mean, it certainly wasn't a coyote attack or anything like that. It was obviously some a really sharp instrument. And then at the same time, a completely empty body cavity and not a drop of blood. That was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Because normally, if a predator attacks even an 84-pound calf, there's going to be at least a couple of liters of blood and guts flying all around, all around the place. This was a very, very pristine scene. And remember, this had happened in daylight um, with two people only 100 yards away. They didn't hear anything. They didn't see anything. But I guess that was the weirdest thing that I've ever seen because um, one of the femurs from the calf had been forcibly ripped out of the, uh, the ball and socket joint and tossed aside. But, uh, but the calf was laying in a very sort of, um, I would say it, it, it was an obvious setup. You know, it was, it was perfectly lying spread eagled on the grass as if it had been placed there in a sort of a ritualistic way. So it was a combination of this incredible force that had been used to rip open the, the femur. At the same time, it had been sort of gently placed on the grass and, you know, not a, a drop of blood. And I mean, I'm a physiologist, I'm a biochemist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know what blood looks like and there was not a single drop of blood lying there. And, and that was, that probably was one of the weirdest things that happened. Um, you know, I, I did see a lot of um, objects that were very close, um, obviously moving around, these orbs of light that would move around, uh, intelligently controlled on the property. Um, you know, we had, we had a close encounter with one, myself and this other physicist. But I, in terms of absolute weirdness, and I would go back to this sort of moment of ontological shock that I was talking about, that calf was a real gut punch because, you know, it was that combination of ferocity and finesse um, that was, it was almost like, it was very spooky. I should add, uh, you know, although I am kryptonite when it comes to UFOs and when I'm there, they don't appear. 
my role as a journalist was to gather information. So in all of my trips there, I would interview the people like Colum, like Eric Davis, who had spent a lot of time on the ranch, as well as the neighbors. People lived around the property to, uh, to hear the things that had happened to them that spills over from Skinwalker Ranch, the Ute tribe, uh, the, the whole area. Uh, the, where the ranch is, is a, an island of privately owned land and the rest of it around the, on all sides is owned by the Ute tribe. So the Utes had been there for generations. They had some great stories about experiences they've had. Other ranchers, police officers who had worked on the property. I gathered a lot of information and it, the stories were incredibly spooky. Um, you know, there's a, one of the tales that was told by the Gorman family as about this creature uh, that they encountered. They had somebody show up that wanted to ask for permission to uh, go onto the property and meditate. And it was a big kind of uh, Grizzly Adams looking dude who said he'd driven hundreds of miles. He had to be there, something was driving him there. He just wanted to meditate for a couple of minutes. So they took him out to the middle homestead, which the ranch is made up of three former homesteads all put together. And the middle homestead is sort of the beating heart. And in that section, this guy starts, has his head to the sky, he's meditating, and the rancher and his son are kind of watching him. They're kind of laughing at this goopy dude standing out there and meditating and trying to call in some kind of an entity or something. And then they start hearing this noise. It's like a cowbell over in the, over in the bushes, and they don't have bells on any of their cows. So this cowbell noise draws their attention, and they look out into the, into the, the brush, and there's a, something moving, some kind of a creature that later they identified as similar to the predator creature. It had a camouflage, opaque kind of a look to it. This thing comes screaming out of the bushes toward the guy who's got his eyes closed, and it lets out a roar that apparently was so loud, it's like a lion's roar that you could hear for a mile around there. The guy panic flies back, back, back into the, falls down on the ground. The rancher and the, his son rush over to see if he's okay. This creature goes back into the brush, it takes off, the guy, uh, I guess, was panicked. He, he had to be escorted from the property and he left screaming and yelling that it was some kind of satanic place, that it was evil, that they're all going to burn kind of stuff. It was, it was oh a crazy gosh. experience. I tell that story because my good friend, Colm Kelleher, on my first visit to the property, took me to that spot <laughs> in the middle of the night. And there, are certain <gasps> things, there are certain things you could do to stimulate activity on the ranch. The arrival right. of strangers. Well, I'm certainly strange enough. Uh, okay. We made a bunch of noise. We built a fire out there. We got an earth mover and moved around a bunch of dirt. We tried to stir something up. And then Column says, says, hey, maybe you should sit on a chair out there in the nighttime at the place where this thing came out of the bushes and let's see what happens. And so he stuck me out there and they left, went a couple hundred yards away, watching with binoculars <laughs> to see if some creature comes to get me. So you guys are really good friends. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'd like to tell you that it was all fine. I'm not scared. It's it's all, um, you know, nothing to worry about here. But sitting there in the dark at Skinwalker Ranch where all these strange things had happened, I'm thinking, all right, I can handle it if a UFO shows up, but I really don't want to see that that weird predator predator creature or whatever has been eating up cows. Uh, right. The only thing that came to got, get me were, were mosquitoes that night, but I'll never forget my good buddy Colm helping me out and using me as bait. <laughs> Although I did buy him a beer afterwards, just to uh, just one settle the account. Yeah, just one. That seems like the perfect hazing ritual for bringing new people onto the ranch. It's just you're gonna go sit out there in the middle of the night for a couple hours, just see what happens. Then yeah, you get how a beer. long did you sit out there? Oh, it's probably half an hour, forty-five minutes. Seemed like about six hours to me, though. Sure. 
Oh my goodness. Since we're talking about occurrences on the ranch, um, and your your guys' great book, it, it covers everything from cryptid sightings to UFO UAP sightings to portals to poltergeist activity. Um, was there anything... Were, were there any occurrences on the ranch that didn't make it into uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker that are worth talking about or that you're allowed to talk about? We debated about a couple of them because there's a couple of things that are really just off the charts crazy. It, it makes no sense. They don't fit as a UFO story. They're not they don't fit like a poltergeist story. They're not creature sightings. Exactly. They're just in a category all their own. And they would never happen again. Nothing ever happened quite the same. So, you know, when you're trying to be a scientist, as column is, and replicate uh, results, it's impossible. But the, the one that we really debated about was um, there's a, a report that, that column and his team acquired from two Native American police officers. They drove down the road. There's a paved road leads to the dirt road that goes into the ranch. And they're out one, there one night in total darkness. They come around the curve on this right near where the entrance to the ranch is. And they see two figures standing on the road wearing trench coats, smoking cigarettes. Their backs are to the road. The officers shined a light over on these guys who turned around and they were dogs. They had dog faces, what? dog faces, smoking cigarettes, wearing trench coats in the middle of the night. Looked at each other and looked back. The guys are gone. They get out of the car. There were burning cigarettes there on, on the road. But, you know, at the time we kind of debated, do we put that in my meat? Does it destroy the credibility of everything else? Because it's so off the charts weird. But as you know, if you follow these topics now, there are a lot of dogmen sightings all across the country. It's right. not as crazy yeah. as it might have sounded then. We decided not to edit ourselves, go ahead and put it in and let people judge it for what it is. Yeah, that, that was definitely the weirdest, uh, the weirdest one. I, I, I think that the sort of the broad spectrum of everything from Bigfoot sightings to these gigantic uh, dire wolves that were seen multiple times. Dire wolves are these uh, wolves that were maybe twice or three times the size of a, a normal wolf, and they were uh, went extinct 20 million years ago. Um, but they uh, there was a number of really sort of well-documented sightings of these creatures on the property. And then there's a lot of different um, sightings of unusual uh, hybrid type creatures on the property. We, we began to meticulously go neighborhood, neighbor to neighbor, probably a two mile radius over several years. And we would, you know, show up at these people's doors without warning so that there'd be no time to sort of make up a story. Right. And, you know, sometimes they would talk to us, sometimes they wouldn't. But the ones that did talk to us, um, we started accumulating a lot of these really weird, uh, you know, accounts, and they were matched by the kinds of uh, activities that we were experiencing on the property. So it wasn't just Skinwalker Ranch. It was a radius that seemed to expand, um, you know, at least a couple, maybe five miles around Skinwalker Ranch. And it was all this kind of bizarre activity. As George said, you know, the Uinta Basin itself, you know, this sort of 40 square mile area has had a long, long history of UFO activity, uh, which is as what was well documented by Professor Salisbury. But it's the weird underbelly that we sort of kept on, you know, bumping up against. In addition to the sort of the shiny uh, metallic objects, 
you would also find these uh, a lot of these accounts of these bizarre creatures and and also bizarre sort of these large bird-like pterodactyl creatures um, that that were encountered. Um, so it was a combination of straight sort of nuts and bolts kinds of UFOs and these bizarre creatures mixed in with cattle mutilations. And then sort of all these strange things used to happen on the property. You know, you, you would come in with a bag of groceries, put it on the put it on the you know shelf, uh, turn around and the, the, the groceries would be gone. And sort of they would end up in the microwave or the fridge or somewhere where it would be sort of totally weird or in the washing machine. So oh this kind of poltergeist activity was like sort of, uh, you know, psychological warfare. Yeah. Sort of something was playing games. And that, that something was always out of reach. You know, any time that we set up night, uh, night vision cameras and sort of these uh, video cameras with night vision capabilities, um, inevitably, you know, you'd have batteries dying right at the moment when you were sort of just getting a good shot lined yeah. up and the batteries would completely die. You'd have a spare set of batteries. You put those in and those batteries would die. And, you know, it, it, it became a sort of a frustrating cat and mouse game. Night after night, we would be hunting this. You know, that's why we call the book Hunt for the Skinwalker. We were literally, literally hunting this around the property. But it was always, whatever this is, was always one step ahead. And uh, it never injured humans. But, you know, a lot of animals died on that property. A lot of animals vanished. Right. Uh, the the owners of the property, you know, uh, in an 18 month period, lost 20 percent of their herd of cattle. And these were high end cattle and sort of losing one percent is considered pretty bad up there. But losing 20 percent is just you've got to pack up and go home. Yeah. By the time I'll tell you this, by the time that Nids and Bigelow and Column and the team arrived on the property to meet the rancher and his family, I mean, they had gone there. This is their dream property. It was it was perfect for what they wanted to do. 480 acres, beautiful place, scenic wonderland, perfect for raising high end uh, cattle. The yeah. rancher was college educated. Uh, the, his wife was the vice president of a bank. The two kids were straight A students. All of that crumbled within that 18 to 20 month period that they were there. By the time Nids arrived, Column had told me the whole family was sleeping in, in one room together at night because they'd been psychologically battered by whatever it was. These guys go there primarily to chase UFOs. They're scientists and there's enough stigma attached to UFOs by itself. When they get there and find out about this whole range of other weird paranormal supernatural stuff, it's a challenge for them, uh, the challenge for their credibility. Ufologists have always weeded out anything that sounds like paranormal. They didn't want to admit that aliens could be inside flying saucers for decades. So let alone uh, study anything that sounds like poltergeist. But when you got a family that's there and all the weird little stuff that was going on that's chronicled in an amazing document that the NIDS guys put together, that's what raises the hair on, on, on my arms when I read about it and when I hear about it from the people to whom who experienced it. The Same. Column mentioned about the groceries going back in the bags. The the wife the, who lost her job, she ended up losing her job at the bank, just kind of fell apart. She would take a shower every morning. She'd lock the door. She had a, a hairbrush and a towel. I want to put them on the cabinet, take her shower, 
And one morning comes out, the door is still locked, but the hairbrush and the towel are gone. Something had got in there. We, we kind of kicked around like, all right, is this kind of a military psyop? But what commando sure. is sent in to take her hairbrush and her and her towel while she's taking a shower and and not be detected? It was all that weird kind of stuff that the ranchers out using a post hole digger to dig a hole in the ground to put a, a post for a fence inside. He stops to wipe his brow, take a sip of water, and this heavy piece of equipment he was using is gone. And they found it up uh, two weeks later, 75 feet up in a tree. And, you know, do you publish a scientific paper about that? Do you uh, publish an article? I mean, as scientists, Colum and Eric Davis and the others, uh, you know, they were they wanted to solve the mystery, but it always changed forms and right. uh, it changed the rules. Yeah, I can't do poltergeist stuff that really I was I watched the documentary and I was reading about it. I've seen the documentary a few times. Um, I could not. That part freaked me out. Like I had to, like, take a break. It's it's so strange to to kind of hear the the statement from both of you being like yeah the the cut and dry piece of this is the ufo sightings and the uap sightings and that <laughs> documentable that documentable piece of it that's 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 our that's bread and butter easy, easy easy to write off easy to easy to document it's all the other stuff that gets weird uh, but speaking of ufos uh we would like to ask so basically um how much of a direct line did your book Hunt for Skinwalker, have on found the founding of a government-funded UFO program? Because that's crazy. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, there is a, a, a absolute direct line between the publication of that book and the, the genesis of this uh, U.S. government program. The reason for that is that um, there was a ballistic missile physicist as part of the Defense Intelligence Agency who got his hands on Hunt for the Skinwalker. Um, I'm not sure exactly how he, how he came to, to have it, but in 2007, he read it. Um, and a buddy of his, who we call Axelrod, in the later book, Skinwalkers of the Pentagon, um, he, gave, he gave Hunt for the Skinwalker to Axelrod, who was just being deployed on a mission to Iraq. And um, around the pool in the green zone in Baghdad, Hunt for the Skinwalker apparently became a very popular read for all of these, you know, people passing through. The book was passed around a lot. But Lekatsky uh, and his superiors discussed what was in the book. And one of the things that was in the book was that there were flying objects that nobody seemed to know anything about. Uh, they were flying willy-nilly around the airspace above the Skinwalker Ranch and in Utah, and nobody seemed to be documenting them. NORAD was, seemed to be ignoring them. So, um, and nobody knew if they were uh, hostile or benign, if they were a foreign power or if there was something else. So Likatsky and his superiors um, decided to write a letter to Robert Bigelow. Long story short, Bigelow checked him out. He was real. And so this defense intelligence agency uh, analyst who was a ballistic missile physicist flew to Las Vegas, and then Robert Bigelow and this guy, his, whose name was James T. Lekatsky, uh, you know, basically flew up to uh, Utah and rove onto the ranch. Lekatsky was not more on the ranch for more than two hours when um, he was in the kitchen uh, talking with the ranch managers and with Robert Bigelow. And behind Robert Bigelow and the ranch managers, 
this apparition appeared in the kitchen of the homestead. It would look like a metallic object that was surrounded in sort of yellowish mist. Lekatsky was the only one that saw it because it was behind uh, the other three yeah. as they were, they were in the kitchen. Right. So Lekatsky looked at this, looked away, looked back. It was definitely real. And then it kind of vaporized in front of him. This all happened over a couple of minutes. Um, but he was stunned. He didn't say anything at the time. And then, you know, Robert Bigelow had finished business with the ranch managers. Uh, they got in the car, drove back to this, this town, Vernal, to where Bigelow's jet was parked. And then they flew back to Las Vegas. Likatsky had not said anything about this, but he was absolutely gobsmacked by what he had seen. He had spent no more than a couple of hours on the, the Skinwalker Ranch and he had seen this bizarre apparition. So he went back to his superiors and from that uh, went back with uh, Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow and Lekatsky with Senator Harry Reid um, began the whole process of putting a, a program together. And it ended up that a two-year program came out of that that was put out for public competition and Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies won that competition. $22 million was allocated funding through the Defense Intelligence Agency to study UFOs. But the genesis of all of that activity that began, uh, that ended with this program in 2008 to 2010, began with this book, uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker. I mean, it was the, the genesis of this program. As you know, the whole world's talking about UFOs. Congress is now interested in UFOs. They've created a new program called Arrow to investigate. The mainstream right. media has been covering it as, as they haven't never before. This all started in 2017 with a story in the New York Times. It kind of blew up. All of that is traced right back to OSAP and the and Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, none of this stuff would have happened without the program that was set up that involved Column and, and Mr. Bigelow. Senator Reid who was a friend of mine, I covered him for 30 years. We had an ongoing conversation privately about UFOs and he helped me over those decades. He was the first person I told about my investigation back in 1989 outside of our newsroom. And when Bigelow created NIDS um, and had me speak at that first meeting, I went back, I called up Reed and said, hey, there's an amazing organization. You might wanna know about it. I was hoping he would ask to be invited and he did. So. He gets invited to a meeting later, met, established the seeds of a friendship with Bigelow that later um, wasn't was directly related to, I think, uh, the idea to create this program. Reed had a secret interest in UFOs for a long time and then found a chance to go ahead and authorize a, a program to go ahead and investigate. But as we as we pointed out, this mystery is a lot more complicated than just UFOs. Right. It is a challenge to science for sure. I mean, even ufologists don't want to touch this stuff. And for a scientist of, of uh, Dr. Kelleher's credentials mm -hmm. to be willing to listen to the evidence, to follow the evidence wherever it leads is an amazing thing. And I think the public isn't aware, but that book directly related to all of the UFO mania that's underway right now. So what other impacts and ramifications have you seen as a result for you publishing Hunt for the Skinwalker? You know, when we published the book all the way back in 2005, which seems like ancient history, George had published two articles just prior to the book 
that were they went global about this path of the skinwalker. Um, but that was the first sort of inkling that anybody had had known about this this property. And so it 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 I would say catalyzed a global phenomenon of interest where um this property, this 500 acre property in northeastern Utah became a sort of a, a global phenomenon. I would say uh, a, an entirely new meme or cultural meme has been generated because of that book and the way it sort of uh, you know kept on rolling over the years. It's generated sort of movies and documentaries. There's probably between half a dozen and a dozen sort of books. Um, there, and the TV show that uh, uh, has been ongoing for the last four years I mean, all of these can be sort of uh, seen as the products of that original Hunt for the Skinwalker book because, you know, nobody would have had an interest or even a knowledge. Um, Mr. Right. Bigelow, you know, killed the idea from my documentary way back then. Eventually, uh, Jeremy Corbell made it, uh, but he, he eventually said, signed off on the idea of the book. But his concern was this place will be overrun by UFO hunters and ghost hunters and crazy people. And in fact, that is what happened. I mean, within <laughs> after the book came out, unfortunately, people started going onto the property, trespassing, going up to the windows in the middle of the night, taking flash photos inside, scaring the hell out of the caretakers. They would take souvenirs home, tour off the, the front gate, took, take down warning signs. I mean, it was it's been a mess. Mr. Bigelow ends up permanently assigning uh, invest his security staff to go there. Uh, a lot of those guys who've gone there didn't want to go back. Some of them took to it and, and were there for a long time, but they had to be there to keep people from overrunning the property. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Bigelow's fears about what would happen when the word got out uh, were realized. It, it really did happen. But I guess yeah. now the team that's there for the uh, Brandon Fugel and his team doing great work. The, this, the series that's uh, underway is really pretty interesting stuff. They're, they're finding they're able to document a lot of the same kind of activity that happened to the NIDS team is happening to them, except they've got a lot of cameras around that NIDS guys didn't have. Yeah, I um, have been a fan of that series since since it started airing. And it's, you know, it's it's fascinating um, what they've been able to capture for sure. Uh, but let's talk a little bit more about the book. Specifically, Boom Studios is putting out uh Hunt for the Skinwalker in comic book form, which will be collected into graphic novel, which uh, as as of this recording, uh, we have just launched the uh, deluxe pre-order campaign for it, our uh, Boom Direct Reserve campaign uh, for Hunt for the Skinwalker. And included in that is what we're calling the declassified edition of uh, the original uh, publication of, of your book. Um, so I was just wondering if uh, the two of you could talk a little bit about what is so special about this version um, of the book, both the graphic novel adaptation and the new updated declassified edition of the uh, nonfiction book. Well, we're excited about the possibilities of a new generation of readers uh, through a graphic novel comic um, platform discovering the story, the story that kind of started it all. Um, I, you know, as a kid, I had hundreds of these comics and, and loved it. I learned my vocabulary from comics, Marvel and DC. I wish the hell I had saved all those things from of the first edition of <laughs> Spider-Man and Thor and the Fantastic Four. And and um, I wish I had kept on kept that collection. But uh, I've been a comic fan for a long time. 
Obviously, it's a chance to reach a, a much broader spectrum of readers. We're, we're thrilled to, to be part of this. We're, we can't wait to see where it goes. And of course, we're also thrilled to be able to offer a hardcover version of our book. Uh, we've, we've proposed that a couple of times to the publisher. Uh, you guys are going to make it happen, though. It's gonna, and uh, we're going to write an updated uh, version and add some new material to update the story from 2005 on. And, and, um, and hopefully a lot of new readers will learn what's, what's happened at the ranch over the decades. George has, has nailed it there. I mean, the audience is really, um, I think the, the audience is going to be new, probably is not as familiar as, uh, as the, the normal readers. So I, I'm really excited, too, about moving out into uh, a new audience and a new generation of people, potentially, who will be sort of hopefully impacted in a positive way uh, with curiosity and and. It, it, it's like the whole genre can can benefit from this because the more people that know about this means that that you know people may get interested in this and may eventually end up researching it. So I'm really excited that the comic book um, and the graphic novel uh, aspect is is finally coming to fruition. I think it's uh, it's going to be a great move. And um, I'm really happy to see the, the new version of Hunt for the Skinwalker um, come out because a lot of water has gone, gone under the bridge since the, uh, the original book. And it really is time to sort of put a, a framework behind uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker and update a lot of what's happened since the, the publication of that book. I mean, we'll probably write a chapter um, to to uh, to beef it up, but you know, seriously, we could probably write an entire book um, that would la be layered upon Hunt for the Skinwalker because so much has happened and there is so much uh, of context. So I think the combination of the um, of this new initiative by Boom uh, with the, the the hardcover version of Skinwalker Hunt for the Skinwalker is going to be a really successful venture. By the way, I can't wait to see the artistic renderings of the handsome young Irish scientist who's the central <laughs> figure in this. Um, I'm worried about the swashbuckling journalist. <laughs> I will say we we are all very excited. And actually, um, we, we were curious, how involved were you two with our amazing, wonderful creative team of Zach Thompson and Valeria Burzo? We've been talking to them for a while, uh, for several months, about uh, the approaches that could take. They've been sharing artwork and different kind of renderings and ideas for covers with us, and we're giving thumbs up or thumbs down to all that. It's just been a lot of fun, though, to see all the different interpretations that the various artists have come up with. I love it. I'd like to make posters and put them on my wall, all of them. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's make some posters. And people I'm will buy them. Absolutely. People would buy them. We would buy both. Add it to the list. Yeah, for sure. Perfect. All I've seen is uh, very, very spooky versions of, you know, dead cows and, um, you know, various creatures parading through the moonlight. I mean, they're the I think the creativity in this project is really, really good. And I've, I've really liked a, a lot of what has been produced. Um, it's it's a, it's been a really interesting sort of creative process so far. We have some ideas too about extras. You know, the, your team has come up with some really cool ideas, marketing ideas for the various packages. We've got something special in mind 
something that's never been published before that we're going to include Ooh. as an extra. Um, I'm not even going to describe it, but it, it is a, it's a chronology of events that was compiled uh, a long time ago that has never been made public. That's pretty spectacular. That's fun. Oh, that sounds super rad. That sounds so fun. I love that. Me too. We're both like, me and Anthony's eyes like light up. We're like, oh my gosh, it sounds so cool. Before we wrap up here, and again, I can't thank you enough for the both of you for taking the time tonight to, to speak with us. This has been so much fun. Um, as we have been discussing this entire time, just succinctly in your own words, what do you think is happening on the ranch and why? You know, we went through in the book, Column and I went through, what are the possibilities? Uh, are there aliens, extraterrestrials? Well, I guess you can't rule it out because we don't really know are extraterrestrials visiting our planet or not, what they would look like and why they would do the things that have happened at the ranch. So we can't rule it out, but it doesn't really, uh, the activity there doesn't seem to match what we know about UFO activity around the world. Uh, could it be a military psyop operation? Well, we can't rule that out either. Some of it, uh, you know, some of the things that have happened there, you know, we have seen evidence that the military has been interested in the property. We know that the DIA had a study of it and we know other foreign governments have, have been monitoring it as well. So some of what happened there could be military psyop operation, but also there's some of that technology that no one on earth has um, could it be some other kind of intelligence, a non-human intelligence, a crypto terrestrial, ultra terrestrial, something exotic that we can't even really define? Yeah, uh, it, it could be interdimensional. Um, that's a possibility, too. We know that some of the activity that happened on the ranch, um, it, there were holes in the sky and things would move in and out as if there's another world on the other side. So um, interdimensional. I mean, there's a lot of exotic possibilities that are hard to prove. Nailing it down, what was going on on the ranch for one central source is maybe impossible. And maybe the answer is it's more than one thing. Maybe it's interdimensional and extraterrestrial and military psychological or something else more exotic. No one knows. Um, it's going to take more study. Uh, you know, it's going to take a long time to figure out if ever. Colin? Yeah, I think that's the bottom line uh, is that we're, you know, we're still in the data gathering process. And, you know, how do you actually distinguish between a crypto terrestrial, an ultra terrestrial, <laughs> an extraterrestrial or an interdimensional? I mean, what scientific experiment can you dream up that will actually distinguish between those those four options? And the answer is we don't have a clue even how to create that kind of experimentation because we still don't know enough. And, you know, I think that the bottom line from all of the experience on Skinwalker Ranch is that whatever is there is, number one, it's very intelligent. Number two, it's very deceptive. It has, it has a way of uh, all the time being out of reach and making sure that it's never sort of discovered. All communication happens on... The, its terms, we we tried over the years on many different uh, occasions to initiate uh, various forms of communication multiple different times, everything from psychological type, uh, type focusing to um, installing different games, installing different objects that could be moved. Um, I mean, we did a lot of different work and 
Occasionally, you would get a flicker of uh, positive results that was never repeated. And so, uh, you know, communication always has to be on their terms or whoever they are. So I guess the bottom line for me is, is that whatever is there is very intelligent. It's very deceptive. And um, it, if it ever wants to communicate, I think it will, it will do so uh, in a way that will completely surprise us because I think a lot of our interpretations and of a, lot, a lot of our ways of, of analyzing these things are pretty old school. And um, I think it probably requires some fresh, fresh thinking. But first of all, we've got to get more data. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line. I mean, I'm speaking as a scientist. We still have to, even after sort of, what, 20 something years on Skinwalker Ranch, we still have to get more data. Mr. Bigelow, in the first interview he ever did on camera, I asked him some questions about the ranch. And he said, look, this thing is always one step ahead of us. Uh, it, it allows us to, the only things that we see are what it allows us to see. It's like a display, it's like a game. And it's always one step ahead. It knows what we're going to do before we do it. Uh, and it, it, it stays one step ahead. So whatever it is, it's a lot smarter than us. It allows us to see little glimpses of this and that, none of which ever makes sense. Um, it's going to take a breakthrough of some kind, or it will have to decide uh, when we know what's going on there. Um, unless it, it allows it, it's not going to happen. I wonder how it feels about you and everybody who goes on the ranch. It kind of sizes you up. Uh, you know, people who have gone there with a militant sort of attitude, folks packing a gun. I'm not afraid of this. I'm going to come in here and it's not going to scare me. They're the ones that get get the worst treatment. They're the ones that have it. Awesome. Here's <laughs> <laughs> the crap. It scares the I crap love that out. though. It's like it it senses it senses how you're entering its space and if you're being respectful or not. And I kind of honestly kind of really dig that. I'll tell you, after I'd been there for maybe ten times, I had to. I made an admission sitting there with Mr. Bigelow. I don't know if Colin was on that trip or not. I said I feel good there. I just feel I had a good feeling. Uh, it yeah. was scary a lot of times, but it just gave me some energy that I didn't have uh, before I got there. It just it was a it was kind of like sticking my finger in an electric socket sometimes. But I always felt good there. So that's why it doesn't mess with you. <laughs> I guess it seems so odd and frustrating that the only way to kind of observe and record data is to be within the dome of it itself. Yeah. And it has complete control over its dome. So. It's it's, you know, kind of damned if you damned if you don't trying to to record and and, and monitor anything on the ranch uh, in its own domain. I know. Maybe. Did you try asking nicely? <laughs> yeah, we did, actually. <laughs> of course you did. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we tried uh, everything from, you know, quasi meditating to um, to putting out positive vibes. And I think that actually is is um, it's one way of being protected on the on the ranch. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, as George said, if if you know people with hostile uh, you know uh, mindsets really do get uh, get negative feedback. I'm so here for that though. This has been amazing, George Column. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Um, to everyone who's listening or watching. Be sure to pick up a copy of both issue number one of Boom's Hunt for the Skinwalker and 
Colin and George's book. Thank you uh, all. Thank absolutely. you so much. I'm so glad you guys were able to do this. this um, really fast, where can people find you in your work? I'm uh, still work at KLAS TV, so I'm, I'm, you can email me, gnap at 8newsnow.com. I, I uh, post Coast to Coast AM third and fourth Sundays of each month. I do a podcast with Jeremy Corbell called Weaponized. I'm around. I'm, I'm working right now for a, um, a research institute that studies uh, scientifically, quote unquote, the uh, survival of human consciousness after death. Remember, George talked at the very beginning of this whole thing about NIS was divided in two. One arm was UFOs. The other arm was survival of consciousness after death. Well, that organization with Robert Bigelow has been reactivated three years ago. And the focus is on looking at scientifically what is the evidence that human consciousness actually survives death. Um, and so, you know, what happens after death? Is, is consciousness capable of surviving death? And if so, how can it be uh, interacted with? How can it be communicated with? So that's what I'm doing right now. That's fascinating. That's genuinely fascinating. That's yeah. I'm. I want to talk about that next. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Let's everyone, do if you want to stay up to date, <laughs> yeah. Everybody listening, if you want to stay up to date on all things Boom Direct, uh, remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel or our podcast, and to follow Boom Studios on all of social media. Yep, I'm Harley Solbaka, and I'm Anthony Morrow, and this is and this is Boom, Boom Direct. Direct. Thanks, guys. Thank you, you so much. Um, it was so cool. This, this was very cool for me. Uh, you guys are 